Well, hello, guys. Uh, great to see you again uh, to the audience. Uh, these are a couple of guys that I uh, started hanging out with back at COVID uh, when it first hit, and we created a Friday night study group. And so we had a wonderful time during that whole thing uh, talking about uh, very, very complex biological uh, processes and projects and whatnot. So on that note, uh, we'll start with you, Craig. Why don't you introduce yourself and let us know, you know, what brought you here, and then we'll jump to leave. Yeah, sounds good. My name is Craig Trester. Um, I'm an applied mycologist, kind of also working in multiple fields. I got into fungi through looking at kind of the state of the world, um, especially with like oil spills and contamination and thinking about like, there has to be a better way. Learning that like a lot of oil remediation with the Gulf of Mexico, with Deepwater Horizon was like spraying a petroleum product, a dispersant, which just breaks it up and it's worse to the environment than petroleum. So that was kind of like an aha moment. But yeah, I've been doing a number of things with soil, um, mycology, microbiology, molecular biology. And it's been a very interesting trajectory where, you know, very fitting for the soil matters. Kind of one of my focuses, like, like how do we understand this black box beneath our feet? We understand the stars above better. Kind of actually Leonardo da Vinci said that. But yeah, that's how I that's how I've gotten into it. So I do a lot of consulting, teaching, research, development, and did a podcast with this guy over here um, as well. So we'll kind of get into more things, but yeah, we're just kind of a love of educating and sharing and finding ways with biology to really crack at a lot of these problems we have today. There's lots of solutions out there. All right, Leap, and how about you, my friend? Well, thanks for uh, having me on the show, Leighton. Um, I guess I would describe myself as a uh, multi-slash-interdisciplinary environmental scientist, which I guess just means I have commitment issues with uh, what topics <laughs> to actually focus on and take down. And I originally studied ecology uh, as an undergraduate in college, kind of more uh, community ecology, behavioral ecology, kind of like how animals organize themselves and reproduce and a little bit into plants and how that relates to that. And then I had intermediate times of doing more of landscaping, kind of get my hands in the dirt. And then I later on got more into environmental chemistry because I started to have a fascination with the topic of bioremediation and the way that different organisms can help remove environmental pollution or regenerate uh, ecosystems. That led me to get into environmental chemistry. I did work with wetland science because wetlands are very uh, profound ecosystems for transforming chemicals, as well as having lots of biodiversity and uh, applications and actually engineering applications. And then I spent time working in mycology, some for food production, some for utilizing fungi and soil restoration and other applied purposes. And now I've kind of veered a little more into anaerobic microbiology and kind of environmental microbiology in general of uh, another realm of organisms that can help deal with contamination problems in the environment. And uh, yeah, and like Craig mentioned, we did a podcast together for a little while. So science communication and helping uh, distill down these rather complex concepts into a form that people who haven't spent 10 years in various realms of the science world can hopefully understand and ultimately apply to their own practices, whatever they'd be. Yeah. And we also did a, a couple of um, clubhouses uh, years back on future canvas projects. Oh, yeah. we Tom Lee in and we really kind of did play around in that uh, anaerobic rabbit hole, so to say. 
Yeah. Uh, which is pretty interesting. So it's similar to kind guess, of the, the oh yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 no. It's all good. Very well. Relaxed. Yeah, no. It's, it's similar. It's, well, it's, so maybe kind of how we can talk about how we met. Kind of like that. We we met initially, um, you know, through kind of COVID times um, and set things up through like wanted to do a study group. Kind of with everything kind of getting shut down. Detail. Um, so kind of the the running joke is like, especially in 2020, we'd have a weekly call and it would go on for like four hours. So kind of with the clubhouse format, getting more people in there and discuss it. And there's some recordings. And if you want to dig into some deep stuff, you can look up those cuts online. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's something we love to share. So we'll make it a little more succinct today. So, <laughs> And I think the very first topic we did was uh, at the study group was viruses. Are they alive or are they dead? And uh, it might be fun to revisit that very question. Well, I think the answer to that question is uh, depends on how you define life, which, uh, I, which you know, I guess that's not that helpful. But I think it's also informative about uh, when we look at the biological world and nature and ecosystems in general. Um, nature doesn't necessarily lend itself to being easily defined. And so, you know, we're kind of used to hearing that these authorities, these smart people have said, this is what this means. But yeah, you know, there's debate on terms of what life actually means. So, you know, uh, viruses do a lot of the things that life do. They self-replicate, they propagate themselves. I think uh, from my understanding, being that I'm no expert on this topic, what makes viruses often considered not to be alive is that they have no internal metabolism. They don't, they can't like consume things and convert them into energy and then use that to sustain themselves. A virus's metabolism is more or less completely external. It's going around finding a host and using that to propagate itself. And so, I don't know, maybe that's a useful for this uh, kind of unanswerable philosophical question. <laughs> I love it. Craig, you got two cents on that one? Yeah, definitely. And it's, you know, we could dive into like the notion of what is life and kind of looking back to the history of life on this planet, going back billions of years, you know, I think most people have heard about like the primordial soup or ooze. And a lot of the theories was that, you know, we look at the mechanisms inside bacteria, right? We think about like the earliest organisms, like a bacteria, like the ideal body form is like a pill kind of shape, you know. Um, and then you lead to filaments. But if, when you dive down into the biology internally, the molecular biology, and it's it's the world of polymers, of these long strands of DNA or RNA, you start kind of realizing that a lot of the functions of viruses are related to this and may have been an offshoot from a very, like very primordial era and in, in like the early life where it was an RNA world before a DNA world. But it's pretty amazing. So the reality is like, you can look at these automatons and how they're functioning and all this amazing animations of molecular biology, but viruses may have been an offshoot of a function, maybe a mutation or an error or a parallel, parallel alternative in this RNA world that just didn't catch on quite as well, but maintained itself. And then when you look into the, some of the, the viruses that are ancient, like they're megaviruses, almost the size of the cell and even viruses that live inside a virus live inside of viruses. So, you know, maybe we'll just talk today about the bacteriophages, which are the viruses that target bacteria, which, you know, Leaf and I were talking about may have been like a really ignored part of the soil food web, because even in our bodies and across the world, they like in every surface, they play a huge role in regulating the microbial world with bacteria, which are prolific, especially with algae, too. 
So when it comes to viruses, you know, they're associative, but you have to think back maybe at one time eons ago before life was cellular, when it was more polymer, that may be an interpretation. Whereas now we have cellular life and the polymer aspects are valid aspect on our skins. We have our, we have enzymes called DNAs and RNAs. They're enzymes that actually break down DNA and RNA. And if you work in the lab with DNA extracted from the soil to understand microbial diversity or RNA to understand what's being expressed in the soil, you have to protect your sample from it. You have to use molecular biology of water. So it's interesting, right? Everything is alive and chaotic and very much everything's an ecosystem. So that one may be a way to kind of provide some better intuition and insight. No, I love yeah, it. I love it. That, that pure like uh, DNA, ACE, RNA, ACE free water. It's like a little little jug that big. And I'm making this number up, but it's very expensive. It's like it's like hundreds of dollars for a little bottle of water that big because they've yeah. <laughs> proven that it doesn't have any of that stuff in it. But when you're talking about the the early life evolution, once again, this is purely in the realm of speculation. I don't don't quote me on this and saying that it's actually true. But, you know, the kind of some of the hypotheses about the origins of life is that you had just RNAs that developed and then they could replicate themselves. And then perhaps at one point, some sort of protein or cellular structure encapsulated the RNA and protected it from the environment. And then it could keep going in and out. And so that's, you know. Something that could have happened along the way, but let's, uh, I guess, bringing it back to why this matters for soil and growing plants and things like that. This is a, a somewhat of an emerging field of research in terms of the ecological effect of soil viruses, because, you know, we have a, the soil food web kind of schematic is, you know, you have like bacteria and fungi at the bottom and then they're getting eaten by the soil predators and then the plants are consuming that. But viruses are pretty abundant in the soil and a significant percentage of bacterial cell death in the soil is caused by viruses. So with that traditional soil food web model where it's the bacteria are there and then they're getting eaten by protozoa or nematodes and excreted, viruses attacking bacteria and then replicating inside of them and bursting their cells open this is another mechanism that leads to like nutrients leaking out of bacteria cells and becoming potentially available for plants. And like I said, this is kind of an emerging field of knowledge. It's a lot of like the big papers that have been written on this have only come out in the last few years. There's a, a research lab at University of Tennessee that is kind of at the one of the labs at the forefront of this. Uh, the PI's name is Mark Radesevich, I believe, but they you know, are starting to better characterize that you have all these viruses in the soil. One interesting thing is because viruses are so much smaller than bacteria, theoretically, they could be inhabiting much smaller little crevices and nooks and crannies in the you know three-dimensional soil architecture than bacteria can. So maybe they can be hiding out there. And then once a host organism comes by, they can pop out and start, you know, I was about to say feeding on them, but that's the wrong term because that's not what viruses do. But ultimately, this is something that probably is really important in the nutrient cycling and not just soil, but in all ecosystems. So it's a it's a kind of a cool like frontier of knowledge that I, I had the opportunity. I was on a to attend a presentation online given by this researcher and like asked, what are the potential applications of this soil virus knowledge for you know growing plants, improving yields and fertility? And the answer was more or less we don't understand enough about this topic to really be able to use it for any application at this point, but 
are still trying to understand it more, maybe it will. But it makes it an exciting topic because it's something that, you know, truly is a frontier. Yeah, and the uh, and the interesting part, too, is that we believe, again, theoretically, that these viruses are able to switch things on and off within the cell as well. Therefore, kind of um, pushing evolution or de-evolution, depending on which way you want to look at it. So they are a really uh, interesting emerging understanding of, of the minutiae of, of the soil food web. I mean, just just the fact that, you know, we now truly believe or understand that, that the bacteria can change pH in the soil. Um, you know, that was that was something that when I first started talking about that years ago, people laughed and said, that's bullshit. The, the biology can't shift the pH. Um, and it's like, all right, well, what's shifting the pH in the root zone? then? Why is why is this plant mining this material uh, when the pH is not uh appropriate for for that material or mineral to be released and so maybe maybe it goes even deeper than than what we're talking about right now what do you guys feel about that yeah so kind of like the soil and this is something too where and this is some of the a lot of the the work that elaine did for this advocacy understanding the biology is critical in the soil right um and this is coming from the understanding of like like how we study soils, right? It came from geology, right? You know, and then, okay, geological chemistry, right? If you talk, look up a U.S. old agriculture textbook, oh, you're, you can grow these plants within this pH range, which means you got to add this many tons of lime and, so, and you're basically treating it as just a growth medium, not something that's alive. So more recently, as we understood biology, it's a capital B, biogeochemistry, right? And so, you know, the reality is your soil is like that paramaterial, the sand, silt, and clay. Um, it's, that's the texture of your soil, right? The organic matter, right? And then also to the biology, right? So we often think about, you know, like why, like one analogy talking about how important it is to understand this connection between the biology, the organic matter and your, you know, the actual texture is like, why do you put lotion on your skin? Why do you like varnish a table, right? You know, you're protecting it from oxidation, right? You're protecting that oxygen is everywhere and you can shred it. So with good soil, right, even if people will apply compost, I think one of the biggest mistakes we talked about is they'll treat like mulch, right? They don't integrate it in, right? And what you're doing is it's not just the organic matter for the nutrient content, but it's basically a feedstock and also an inoculum with biology. And what really builds soil that holds it together are these biofilms, right? What's a biofilm? Um, you know, like when you wake up in the morning and your teeth is kind of slimy, you know, when you got you know, kind of like, you know, you know, like kind of sand in your eyes or a little gummy or a little snot or like, you know, any mucous membrane. Right. But it's everything's an ecosystem. So one way to think, of, oh, yeah, that too. Yeah. So, and it's kind of interesting. Like, and we understand these microbes live inside our gut. Right. And we can think about an analogy of kind of what is a plant. It's like a gut turned inside out. You know, like you instead of the roots on the outside, which maximize surface area, the tract um, associated bacteria, fungi, and nematodes, protozoa, all the other organisms inside our guts. We have these microvilli. We have these intestinal linings that are filled with bacteria, filled with organisms, um, you know, and then function these roles. And instead of this kind of thick, nice biofilm, when you get, when you get a really good compost that smear like mayonnaise, you have mucus, right? So it's this whole interface of the organic matter, but also the state it's in. Right. And then things you affect it, like with your diet or health and much in the way you would treat it. So, yeah, I think like the important thing with the soil is like this organic continuum that you maintain. And one thing we've talked about 
when we reduce things down, but at what point, if you, when you walk into like an old growth forest, right. And you see how much all this biodiversity and all these different things, right. And there's lots of different ecosystems as well. They're robust and feral and kind of that way. And what you kind of ask yourself, at what point does the plant end and the soil begin? And, you know, just this continued biological matter of the plants, but even too, when you get down to the granularity of, you know, okay, it's the plant growing into the soil and all these biofilms and there's mycorrhizal fungi that are growing around in and associated with them. Then these fungi reach out and then those fungi even have bacteria running along them. And then those bacteria have viruses on them controlling so they don't overcome populations and then air and water. So yeah, it's kind of like that hermetic principle, like as above is below or in physics, they call it scale invariance, right? Like a fractal, regardless of scale, you see these similar branching patterns, but yeah, the biology is essential. And then also what the biology produces. So kind of this could be a cool thing, like where we talk about maybe like biofilms in certain ways. And I want, like, I think one way we talked about it is most people with soil, glomalin, right? This is a term that's kind of um, described with like glomeromycota, which are the mycorrhizal fungi. Um, so kind of like this, this kind of sticky protein, iron rich protein that will kind of bind things together. But the more research we do, we discover that it's not just the mycorrhizal fungi that do it. It's the bacteria, it's nematodes because everything is living together. Like the term for biofilm or the goo that biofilm is made of, um, fancy word, uh, extracellular polymeric substances, right? And so everything's exuding and exiting. And uh, if you're familiar with soil food web, Elanium talks about as exudates, right? Things coming off it. But the, what are in the exudates? Sugars, proteins, um, you know, mm -hmm. amino acids, carbohydrates, the whole thing, even residues of DNA, right? Because the reality is that everything is being exuded, but in a healthy diverse ecology, there's plenty of food for everyone. Everyone eats, right? And that's kind of what we see with succession. We disturb the land, we're resetting it. And it just wants to kind of go back in any way it can from natural disturbances, right? Yeah, that could be one way to sum it up. No, that was awesome because it leads right into another topic that is really cutting edge is the understanding yep. that horizontal gene transfer um, is only the tip of the iceberg. Remember the paper oh, yeah. boys recently about the fact that uh, we now know for sure that the bacteria are actually sharing cytoplasm. So, I mean, that's like a whole nother level. Two, two different bacteria, species of bacteria come together, share cytoplasm. Now they're both unique they're different they're they're not they're not what they were and they're something totally new uh a branch of evolution and and again it comes back to these uh biofilms or relationships craig what was that term uh, basically like it was not a dimer but the when you take a core of the of the biofilm there's other things that are occurring within that that are outside of the cellular, uh, damn it. I'll have to, I'll have to get my head like, back. Like a, a strata or like in outside of the cell, like yeah, on the yeah, surface. It was like, there was like another whole realm outside of the cell, but within the biofilm. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. That's, yeah. 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 It's important of... also with biofilms, uh, know that, they're they have a very structural function and so they create gradients within the biofilm for example there can be like a redox gradient so like anaerobic bacteria can potentially survive in a non-anaerobic setting because they build a big biofilm where 
they're basically shielding themselves from oxygen that might be toxic to them. And so that's how, uh, how they survive a lot of times. And with a lot of anaerobic bacteria, they'll just be floating around doing their thing until there's a stressor like oxygen and all of a sudden, or oxygen, a lack of moisture. And now they're like, all right, now we got to like build up our bunker to protect us against that. And, you know, it's other bacteria do it too, but the biofilm has a very uh, structural thing. It's like a way that these organisms are building a house or a fort for themselves to, you know, survive in a more hostile environment than what would be ideal for them. That was the term gradient. That was exactly like, mm -hmm. like the Winograd's. Okay. The thicker the film is, the more yeah, the strata. Growths of strata are, are involved. And that concept is important too with soil health. With and the, Like this is kind of getting a little bit of a tangent, but it's the same concept. Like soil aggregates are really important because they also create gradients. Like if you have big aggregated soil, you can have a gradient where the middle of the soil particle can have a very different redox potential, a different um, like electronegativity. It can have a different, uh, you know, kind of oxygen availability than the outside of it. So if the soil is just a bunch of little broken up, small little particles, it's going to be somewhat homogenous in terms of the, the EH and the pH niches that exist for organisms to inhabit or the bigger soil aggregates have that gradient as well. So in terms of all the benefits you get in the biochemistry of being able to like transfer electrons, tr transform nutrients, those get better and better the more that there's aggregates and biofilms are doing a similar thing too. Yeah. And again, you know, people, you know, originally we, we looked at biofilms as a negative. Uh, it was always antibacterial, freaking Clorox, bleach it, clean it. And in reality, you know, we've done that to the soil. We've, we've, we've sprayed so much shit on it that we've broken it back into individual particulate of the sand, silt, and clay instead of having it form those aggregates, which are so important. Because, again, the aggregates provide pore space for oxygen exchange as well as uh, water or I should say gas exchange as well as uh, water infiltration. And, and like we've said, the middle or even the whole thing is in a gradient. So there's different levels all the way through into the center. So you destroy the aggregates, you you, you reset everything back to zero. Um, right. And hence, well, guess the worst part is it collapses on itself. So now it's anaerobic. And then, and, and then even like communicate, oh yeah, and then even communication and functioning, right? Signal transduction, right? We think about signals within cells or between cells, right? But we're realizing that a lot of these uh, biofilms, especially like the different types, because we can now characterize them now, understand different composites, things like, for example, signaling within the cell, we're seeing similar signaling with, elect with electrical charges between biofilms or through biofilms, right? And you can kind of think about it like, think about your house, right? There's a transformer not too far away from you that is taking that high voltage line and stepping it down. And then to the then then there's another transformer that basically goes to like your actual like electrical pole to your house right and then those that go into your your basically your mains and then you know you get your like you get your ipod iphone charger that's going to step it down right there's all that minutia as its structures right and so think about when you go break up the soil homogenizing right imagine what life was like when before there was multicellular life right like we look at us right we have two genomes. We have our own genome, but we have also our mitochondrial genome, right? Kind of weird, right? How does that happen? It's the powerhouse of the cell. Well, like 
the current theory is that in the three kind of domains of life, bacteria, archaea, and eukaryota, right? You, like basically eukaryotes refer to like a true nucleus. The hypothesis is that there was a period of stress where these archaea, these anaerobes, would basically go and basically, gra- would basically graze and eat other microbes. And then the mitochondria got scooped up and then incorporated. And that may have actually happened inside of a biofilm that was undisturbed, uninterrupted. There was enough stability from that environment and there was a stressful event competition, um, you know, chemical change, right? Like the first mass extinction was the great oxygenation event, right? Where literally the, the sea was purple. The sea was purple because there was no oxygen because photosynthesis hasn't evolved yet. And then when it, when it developed, it took off and then caused this mass extinction event. So it's crazy when you think about like, how did we get to here as multicellular complex organisms, organelles and organs, all these things from the simple aspect you know, that biofilm was that nice, cozy little incubator for, you know, for geological <laughs> agents that allowed that kind of to happen, right? You know, so it is kind of, it's, you can go pretty deep, but uh, the aspect too is to understand rather than to know, because you can understand a lot of intuition by understanding like kind of um, that kind of scale and variant in time. The more you understand something uh, or, tr- or attempt not to know it, but to just understand it, you realize other connections, right? And, you know, our world, we live in a world of knowing and, you know, the reason why we're having this conversation right now is because someone figured out how to engineer electrical phenomena, right? Like Faraday, he was a demonstrator of electricity in the 19th century, late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, And, you know, he was like, kind of like, you know, almost like, like these like big Van der Graaff things and moving things back and forth and charges. And someone asked him like, what use is this? And he replied, what use is a child? And then you had James Clerk Maxwell, who came around and wrote the Maxwell equations, formalized, wrote out equations to describe electromagnetic phenomena that allowed us to engineer and make all these devices, right? You know, it's, electrical engineering is kind of is magic. And I think we're at a similar point now with biology, with microbiology, where these microbiology phenomena that exist in the world, and we can articulate them and talk about them, but we don't have a, we're, we're still, we're beginning to formalize these these laws that we can observe or, or not so much laws, but understandings about how things community function commune. Right. But, and what's amazing is that these things have been possibly going on for as long as there's been life, like, you know, microbial basic life. It's some of the oldest, but you know, it took a while to evolve an organism to have conceptualization to skills to make sense of it. So the idea is like, as we, as we push to know, I think we can come to a bigger understand a, a bigger discovery holistically by understanding as well, right? You know, because that's where the big advances come through when you kind of, you know, don't say Eureka. Eureka means it worked this time. Most discoveries happen when you say, huh, that's kind of weird. Yeah, what the fuck was that? All, yeah, what was that? You know, let's talk about it, right? You know, oh, that can't happen. That's impossible, right? So that's the whole thing. Science progresses by a generation, right? You know, so as, as someone who's purports to be objective in science is what we don't know, you get people that get biased by that own kind of axiom. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. You're talking add? about all that electricity stuff, and and there's even bacteria out there who basically have electrical cables, like iron-reducing bacteria, which they have a metabolism where like oxidized iron is usually in a solid form. Think rust or you know orange rocks and things like that. 
So these bacteria actually release little cables, more or less, that then go to the solid iron and then transfer electrons to it. So they're basically shooting electricity at rocks to then change the form of the iron, and then you'd be able to use that to harvest energy. So a lot of like pretty fancy human technology is being done on a very small scale by microorganisms. And even with the biofilm communication, um, this is once again, speculative. This is a, something I heard someone tell me about who's just kind of on the forefront of the research, but they're trying to identify structural proteins produced by certain bacteria in biofilms related communication. And some of the protein structure actually looks like, like a barrel. It's like a, like a tube is when they look at the shape of the protein. So it's like maybe there's a biofilm and it has a bunch of these barrel shaped proteins that are actually creating open channels that then molecules or electrons or whatever can then travel through. And, you know, another level of this kind of bacteria biofilm architecture, like they're building pretty cool stuff and they don't even need to use tools. So they're actually building cables. <laughs> yeah, perhaps, perhaps. To shoot, yes. to shoot information back and forth in it. I love it. I fucking love it. Um, yeah. And that brings up, uh, uh, you know, another really, you know, kind of, interesting observation about you know back to kind of like a redox and understanding of how you know this the sharing of of uh, subatomic particles is making things uh, unavailable or bioavailable this is something that you know we've, we've chatted about a bunch in, in trying to i'm just gonna stop you not subatomic particles uh it's well electrically so, well yeah 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 but you know so when you get subatomic you know, like principal core, like quartz and things. But clarify, when a certain electrons configurations can change, right, uh, they can make things more bioavailable. And I think one of the easiest ways people can understand that is rust, patina, right? Iron oxide, uh, copper oxide, right? When rust, rust, when uh, copper goes from orange or red, or reddish orange to green. But yeah, it's, it's the reality that, and these are mediated by these microbes and these enzymes. And for a long time, people thought, okay, it's one gene, one disease, one gene, one enzyme, or one thing, when in reality it's this whole orchestration within the organism, but then with other organisms also plugged there in as well. So it really is like the, they're the alchemists in the soil, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where I was trying to kind of going was like, you know, if you think about like uh, a bacteria shooting a friggin' lightning bolt at, a, you know, chunk of iron ore to, extract an electron to help it produce something else or uh, consume uh, another form of that iron and then uh, excrete out an iron that we later used in the iron age like the whole uh you know central northern part of of america is like the giant iron belt i mean there was so much of that material that came from we have to believe billions of years ago when these organisms first started to set up shop um, that we now mine and turn into steel and iron and everything else. And so, yeah, they are the alchemists of, of the soil. What's the matter? Yeah, kind of on that topic, there's the whole, the big issue of um, acid mine drainage, which not all mine drainage is acid, but but what that means is often when mining occurs in the context of you're going down into a rock formation or a mountain and basically, you know, breaking it apart, blowing it up so you can pull out the ores and then get raw metals out of it for various, you know, important purposes. But all that, all those rocks are previously stable and anaerobic. And now that it's been dug up, 
they'll have groundwater, surface water flow through it. And then all that water and oxygen hitting those rocks allows these chemical reactions to happen where you have um, things like, like sulfur oxidizing bacteria that are taking a lot of the times it's like the pyrite minerals, which are like iron sulfur based minerals, but they're taking that that was stably bound in the rock. Now they're oxidizing it and turning it into like a dissolved iron, which in the process produces a ton of protons or hydronium ions. So now you have this liquid coming out that's full of iron and sulfate and all these other, whatever other heavy metals or trace metals were in that material. And now they're flowing out into this water that's going to go and end up in a stream or a lake or something. And it's, so it's this global contamination issue that happens when mining occurs. It's inevitable. Figuring out how to manage that's an important kind of um, environmental management uh, goal. But bring it back to the rust concept, you have this kind of reduced soluble iron that's being created by bacteria from the rock. When that water comes out of the ground, it's completely clear. It looks like normal water, even though it's loaded with iron because the reduced iron, the iron that has more electrons on it is soluble. So it comes out clear, but all it has to do is hit the air and it immediately starts turning bright orange. And depending on the pH, if it's a low pH, then microbial iron oxidation is really important. The pH is higher. A lot of it just happens um, yeah, spontaneously or abiotically just because that reaction is energetically favored. So I know we're all into the biology here, but sometimes these profound transformations happen without it as well. So one thing about that is you can see clear water coming out of the ground, but if you like, you know, get it on your pants, your pants are going to turn orange in a few minutes because then the iron is going to oxidize and it's rust occurring. And, you know, color changes, they're a pretty uh, profound way to see that a transformation is happening in the environment. So, you know, Obviously, there's lots of chemical reactions that don't have obvious color changes, but some of them do. And so these are like, you know, kind of some of the more, uh, what will we say, gross or uh, intuitive ways to assess like what's going on with soil and rocks is to look at the colors and see how they're changing. And so there's a lot of, I think this ties into like, there's a lot of tools we can have to try to figure out what's going on in a landscape that we can use without having to go take samples and send them to an analytical lab. It's not foolproof. There's multiple reasons why something might turn orange. There's multiple reasons why a soil might turn black or change colors, but we can at least use it as kind of a, a beginning starting point of like, aha, I see this change here. Maybe that means that this mineral has accumulated or there's been a change in the, you know, from going from being oxygenated to anaerobic. So these are, you know, it's, there's a lot, of, a lot of different things you can put in your toolkit for trying to figure out what's going on in the nature around you and, and observing color changes and smells and odors. These are some of the big ones. Yep, the nose knows. Craig, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, so I think one way I think a lot of people can kind of understand that, you know, like we talk about we talked about biogeochemistry, right? Like that's kind of, that's principally like the, 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 the fields of, you know, uh, chemistry, uh, geology and biology that kind of come together. Right. And there's all those aspects and kind of like, in the, I think one way we can see in our soils is that if you've ever kind of been somewhere in the city or a development, if you've dug a foundation, you may see underneath um, like the roots or the soil, 
this compaction layer that usually is the case with a lot of disturbed soils. Like they're called techno soils at the technical aspect, not like not soils that go to a nightclub, but you know, they technically impacted with kind of modification. But one of the things, if you go dig down there, you'll see you get down to the parent material and you'll see these thick clods, right. And these different bands of colors. Right. And, you know, even to like certain clays, which will like, you know, they'll have deposits of different minerals in there. And then based upon, you know, whether it was submerged, the microbes, other factors, you get these kind of different color iterations. But yeah, like that's one of the first ways, like understanding your soil is to approach it. Yeah, we can get the microscope, we can get the DNA sequencer, but just going there and looking at it, understanding it, like doing a soil jar test, doing an infiltration test, a percolation test, which I'm sure Leighton has talked about. Because the reality too is you have to start somewhere on like on our human scale, right? Like you have to start with the geology, right? And then people look at different types of rock formations, whether you're in a sandy soil, clay, a loam, right? And there's different advantages from types of crops, but then you have to descend down to the chemistry, which you can kind of see different factors. But the biology is something that we can really, and this is kind of a lot of the soil food constant. If you really understand and trying your best to build up the biology back through good organic matter, good processes and doing things that are understood to be good, right? There's a lot of, back and forth over anaerobes and avoiding them. But there are processes which Leighton has spoken to with, you know, even fish manure or certain things, fermenting it and then aerobically stabilizing it and maintaining to monitor the temperature and pH, um, which are, you know, factors in brewing good compost tea, we can replenish and recover it, right? I think at the end of the day is like, we're, we have to think about these things as biological interfaces. Um, you know, like, like we, we, I think more so like, you know, maybe we'll think about in the future where like, it's like kind of like, like Neo plug into the brain thing, like that kind of thing. But in reality, like a, a shovel is a biological interface. Like the first stick that was used to push a, a push a, a push a furrow and a plow, a yoke that goes around an oxen to help pull that moldboard initially, right. Is just much a piece of biotechnology, a biological interface as a pipette or a DNA sequencer. And then, you know, that's the aspect. So I think the app to kind of people understand or getting into it is just, just don't be overwhelmed with how big it is. Just take it one step at a time and understand that the biology is an important component, but what you are able to interact with is using your senses, right? And the smell, the nose knows, right? If anyone's ever, you know, like uh, left some produce out, some like brassicas soaking in water, you'll smell that hydrogen sulfide going to work. Uh, if you've left some like uh, manure sitting out or something, you'd smell the ammonia coming off it. And, you know, and there's some ways where like we, we can allow this, this rotting to be good, right? Fermentation, right? What's the difference? Like, you know, textbook like putrefaction is kind of the breakdown of proteins, but you know, there are ways which we can steer this, this uh, microbial decomposition that's good in a rotting in a good way, which can benefit us for improve, improving the nutrition of our foods, but also making food for our plants and the soil and prepare the soil for those plants. So, yeah, I think the aspect too is like to speak generally about these things, there's all this aspect, but in your journey, just kind of don't be afraid. It's one step at a time. And we have the internet, we have the, the library of Alexandria in our, in our hand, um, you know, and then we have these communities. So kind of a deeper kind of like, you know, teleological kind of way, not getting into like the, the nuts and bolts, but kind of understanding like we're, we're like perceive it as a trajectory where you want to learn and go to. And don't be afraid. Yeah. And I love that you wrapped the putrefaction versus fermentation, because I think that's a really important thing to understand. Both work. 
like you know the the dairy farmers in in Connecticut and off the you know the Connecticut River Valley, um, they they take all of their cow manure, put it in these huge lagoons that just absolutely burn your eyes when you smell them or go by them, and they apply that stuff in the spring, and you know it's just horrific to to breathe for about a week. Um, but it works. The corn grows and everything is fine. And then on the other side of that coin is natural farming preparations where you're actually fermenting them. Um, they don't have that putrid smell, uh, but they still function extremely well. And so, again, great way to put it, Craig. It's like you can't be afraid of it. I mean, yeah, you don't want to eat raw manure. The smell is there to warn your biological system not to. Yeah, the, no, the nose knows, right? And that's the thing about it. Like, if you've yes. ever made pickles or a product, right? Like a good pickle, like crisp to it, right? Little bend, little crunch, little sour. And we someone figured out that if you like submerge your organic matter and you pitch a ton of salt and you create these conditions which lead to a good fermentation right lactofermentation is one example you know and then if you've ever done a fermented product oh this kind of went off on one side right oh it's like not crunchy it's mushy it's kind of broken down there wasn't i didn't salt it enough right it's like like the joke is when when like you know like my, my friend like he's korean and he explained that, like, when, when his grandmother and all the other granny and his mom would get together to make uh, kimchi, right? Like, they would, the Napa cabbage, it's like, no cheating. You got to put, you got to put the uh, the spice, uh, like, the spice and, uh, and salt mixture between every single leaf to kind of get it thoroughly broken down. Because, yeah, like, these anaerobic environments, if situated in a certain way, can lead to it, right? And it's been really exciting where a lot of natural farming, a lot of uh, Korean natural farming, a lot of judam. Um, really is kind of highlighted where like there's a principle. And I think even two more with Judam um, uh, is, is really is like, you know, the back, like, like a uh, master chose uh, son. I'm, I'm not going to butcher the name. I'm just going to refer to it as that. Most people understand who I'm talking about um, had a background in like horticulture, plant science and chemistry and like understood that these basic principles to do it. And then even people like Nigel Palmer, um, you know, I believe he was like an aerospace engineer at one point or an engineer, um, you know, put together the regenerative girl guys to amendments to kind of, okay, we need to test and understand these things. Right. And that, yeah, it's, and that's the thing about it. Like the same way of saying someone saying avoid that completely is very much the same thing as that can't happen. And, you know, there's, there's a reason why that happened with Elaine and like politics and different details. But if you're trying to get people on, uh, these regenerative techniques and making a lot of these inputs, farmers will just go do stuff. They'll go do stuff. They don't even if they don't got the information right because they don't have time to waste. So where there's a lot of nuance and a bit of a learning curve, yeah, like sometimes you want to discourage someone in a certain way, but you have to provide that reason. But it's exciting now that especially with like um, I'll just call it biointensive, right? Because the whole thing KNF natural growing biodynamic soul food yada 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 yada. yada. You, you, they're they're all trying to do the same thing, right? You just the tribalism happens again, you know. Um, you just have to realize it's an entire uh, constellation or, or, you know, basically galaxy uh, of different areas, basically in the same plane. So it's pretty exciting. Lee, if you want to add anything to that? Yeah. Um, that was a going, going, going back to, the, you know, when Craig was talking about the importance of just doing things and observing them, I think, yeah, just observational techniques and 
getting hands-on experience is extremely important. And it's something that I'll get out of touch with when I'm doing more formal science research, because I'm trying to really like understand how a system's working. I'm reading a bunch of scientific papers, analyzing data about like some process going on in the sediment. And, and then it just, it gets all cerebral and conceptual. And then, and then like some, you know, usually I don't do it enough, but maybe might be a few days later, weeks later, I go out to a lake or a stream and then I'm just like digging around in the rocks and looking at things. And it's like, Oh, this is where it's all happening. I can, I can read, you know, all the papers there are to read about like this biogeochemical process. But if I'm never actually going and sticking my hand into the muck or walking in the muck or digging yeah. it up and seeing what it looks like, then I'll get completely out of touch with it. And it starts to become this abstract, like what's the point type of thing. So think, you know, no matter who you are, keeping a consistent routine of having that kind of embodied experience of not just observing, but physically interacting with the ecosystem you're working in, whether you're some, you know, ecologist in the rainforest characterizing species, or you're a farmer running a farm, interacting with your soil, or you're just, you know, someone who has a nice hobby of composting or whatever. It's like that. Nothing can replace the hands-on primary experience of actually physically interacting with nature and, you know, the system you're working in. You know, and that brings up another great point is that, um, you know, in my experience uh, growing up as a kid, I loved playing in the swamp. Um, but I would, you know, step off one of these floating islands and I would sink up to my, you know, thigh in mud and then pull my leg out and be like, whoa, holy cow, that smells like hell. Of course, I'd get home, I'd, my mother would close me off with the hose outside freeze my ass off <laughs> I still want that shit in the house but that's important that's a digestion of, of organic matter and, and it's going to later on feed the stream or feed the uh, you know if it gets flooded wash down and, and create a compost tea so you know again all of these processes are super important and, and they as long as you understand that I, I don't want to say there's nothing bad in nature because there really isn't. It's just a process that we humans get stuck in and, Oh, we get exposed to this. It's, it's bad. We're going to get cancer. We're going to get sick. Yeah. You know, I think that's, that's well, it's, 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 it's kind of a thing. I think the one trend you see is that um, usually where there's an opportunity for an organism, it's because there's a deficiency, right? Because a lack of a community establishment, right? Um, like I think one paper, you know, we can, I think, I think I saw in the chat, uh, James White was mentioned rhizophagy, but also too, the other mention was that his, you know, some of his work, which highlighted the fact that uh, fusarium, um, you know, fusarium oxysporum is like a tenacious fungus, a plant pathogen, like tropical type two is a strain that's killing so many of the Cavendish bananas because they're all monoculture. Um, apparently fusarium, when it's in the soil by itself and in the distressed soil, it'll be an opportunistic and tenacious pathogen. But it turns out some of the work was that if, if uh, pseudomonas was introduced into the soil with fusarium, um, the role changes, but not changes where the fungus is now just the decomposer, but actually a mutualist, right? And we're realizing there are these bacterial fungal interactions in the soil. There's even some theories that, um, you know, like we all have candida on and in our body right but then some people have a really gnarly candida outbreak or you know athlete's foot like tania 
Tania, uh, uh, Tania Pettis, what everyone has, or, you know, a more aggressive Tania, Tania Versicolor, which actually kind of blots on the skin. And so one thing we're realizing is that um, when you take a pretty heavy course of antibiotics, let's say you have an infection, uh, let's say you got bit by a tick and you want to kind of knock down the, the aspect, you actually may be doing more harm to your internal microbial ecology, but also the microbial ecology of the fungi or other organisms in your body. And we're realizing that this dysbiosis that happens, right, this, this shifting towards a monoculture have upstream effects, right? So it's funny, given the fact that we were once microbial life that then went through a symbiogenesis, right? And we crystallize our genome, right? We, we, we stabilize the number of genes we had and crystallize our metabolism, which is complex of genes being expressed. The microbiome modulates it. It's where a lot of the general kind of theory, like the general kind of hypothesis of a lot of the microbiome theory is not just for people, but also for microbial ecology in the soil with plants. So it's interesting that there's these up and downstream effects when you reduce to an organism by itself and view it, okay, that's a pathogen, or maybe it's just a host that is no other option. And rather than keel over and die, it's going to survive. And even too in hospitals, right? In environments where, you know, we over sterilize and exercise, and it's important for an operating room and things like that, but we actually might be breeding a lot of these super bugs because think about this microbes, they reproduce rapidly, right? It's the reason why Lysol says it kills 99.9% rather than hundred is because there's some genetic diversity in that population that will overcome it. And then through kind of expansion of populations from that seed or just random DNA floating around horizontal gene transfer, which happens all the time, bacteria that are constantly modifying themselves on every surface all the time. It's a strategy. You lead to these conditions, like for example, like Candida aureus, or some really nasty antibiotic-resistant uh, bacteria, the only viable food source in an environment that is so heavily sterilized may be the macroorganism that sterilized the environment, right? So you have to understand these organisms have been on this planet for so much longer than we have. We've only been around as modern humans for like 300,000 years, you know, and we're kind of, we're hubristic. We think we're hot shit. When in reality, the organisms have been on this planet for geological timeframes, right? Not ecologies, right? geological time frame they got it a little more figured out they're pretty robust so I, it's kind of it's kind of unwinding the human centered perspective that you know we are human we can have this thought and be cognitive cognitive of it and conceptualize but we have to be aware that you know we don't exist in a vacuum we're not islands you know um yeah so it's kind of you get a little more philosophical in that route so you know, well you know it's, it, it brings up a very good interesting point is that when you have that microbial diversity or cellular diversity, you are more suited to deal with uh, potential external pressures in the form of these uh, muted, mutated cells or pathogens or whatever. And, you know, it goes back to the old understanding of, well, if you, if you sterilize everything, the bad guys are going to get there first. So we, we've got to maintain that, that diversity and, and that which includes yeah. pathogens we need you, those you like 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 so this is the idea is that you know you, you maybe want a probiotic you want an enrichment culture right so this is one of the big things i think even with people that make cheese and dairy right there's a really good example um there's a really good food food documentary but it highlighted the tale that there are nuns in connecticut and like they're basically make cheese it's they live, live a monastic life like a like a 
the convent or the monastery, right? Very simple. You make your own food. And to comply with, uh, I think, the state and also uh, FDA uh, food production standards, they they were required to use stainless steel vats for, for their fermentation process. And what happens is the quality of cheese changed, right? It wasn't keeping as long. And pretty much they had someone that came over from Europe and explained to them saying, no, 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 you need to use wood. We can't use it. We'll get shut down. No, no, no. You want the container for your cheese to be like the inside of a cow. So wood, right? All these porous aspects. And even too, there's a lot of surface area where, you know, like um, if you have like your favorite beer stein, right? Or mug or favorite crock, you get a biofilm on it. Those microbes move into the ceramic pores and they basically establish that and protect it. It's like enrichment culture. Um, so when you kill, 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 right? Heck, just use a little soap. Soap's pretty great. Um, you know, and there's some applications like sterilizing, like surgical equipment. Yeah, if someone's going to be putting something in my veins or cutting me open, yeah, I, I kind of want it to be like clean as possible. But, you know, um, but there are ways where we can kind of like use enrichment culture to pre-inoculate or kind of almost like a protective coating in film, which may include these biofilms that help them as well. So this is an emergent kind of property of as we classify these different kind of roles and connections. It's it's like that blue cheese, that stinky, stinky fungi. Oh, uh, the, the, the uh, what is it? Uh, penicillium uh, Roquefort? Something like that, yeah. Stilton, yeah. yeah. Lee, if you want to throw something in on that one? Yeah. Uh, one of the two things. First, when you're talking about if you sterilize everything, then the bad guys get there first. It also can be that you sterilize everything, you actually you can create more bad guys because we've talked about horizontal gene transfer a few times. And some of the types of genes that are most associated with plasmids or like, you know, kind of small little pieces of genetic information, the bacteria will pass back and forth. Antibiotic resistance genes are often carried on these genetic elements. So with the horizontal gene transfer, different organisms passing new, basically passing new abilities back and forth, kind of like, you know, here's your download, here's your, you know, new piece of software to deal with this new program. Capabilities like resisting heavy metals, resisting antibiotics, being able to break down uh, toxins like uh, petroleum hydrocarbons and things like that. These are all abilities that are passed between bacteria on on plasmids or through other horizontal gene transfer methods so there's actually seems to be uh, that's that's the kind of thing that's favored to be able to pass along so even organisms that may have not been antibiotic resistant if you get into a you know you're applying a lot of antibiotics then ones that weren't that way the only ones that are going to survive are going to be the ones who are antibiotic resistant so then they're going to pick up that genetic information from others but now the other thing I want to say is more related to the cheese and the and the mug discussion. <laughs> I was reading uh, something about the history of mead making, um, which you know it's a very ancient alcohol brewing fermenting practice. And you know, back in the day, they didn't know what microbiology was. Back when it was you know like the Vikings or the you know whoever old old Germanic tribes that were brewing mead, they. You know, the way it's thought is that they were like, oh, if we mix the honey and heat it up and add all this wild fruit into it, then these, when we're going to stir it up, then in the middle of the night when we go to sleep, fairies will come and they'll start casting spells on this pot of liquid and then it'll transform it into this thing that gives us all these wonderful feelings when we drink it later. And uh, 
there would be, you know, these kind of family mead recipes that not only involve certain ingredients, it would involve using a specific ladle or a specific cask to make the mead. And so there's reports of in some of these, you know, like Norse cultures, a like a ladle used for stirring mead would be a family heirloom that would get passed down for multiple generations. Mm. And it would be like, you have to use this ladle to stir the mead to turn it into the right type of mead. And, you know, at that time, maybe they viewed it as like, it's enchanted. It's, uh, you know, it's been imbued with some sort of magical properties. But what probably was really going on is they're not sterilizing it. They're using the same ladle over and over. So it's building up a caked up yeast community on it. So it's like they need to use that one to mix it up because they're unbeknowingly uh, inoculating the new batch with the right strains of yeast to ferment the right batch of mead by reusing the same thing over and over. Love it. Fucking love it. What's that other liquid that supposedly makes you trip? It's not a Jägermeister. It's this other stuff. Absinthe. Oh, absinthe? absinthe. Wood in it. Isn't that along the same principles, right? They're, they're using these herbs and stuff to uh, create or create an alcohol, alcoholic beverage that has way more properties than just a straight whiskey or a vodka or something. Well, yeah, that's the thing is like, you know, you have the initial fermentation process, but then you distill it down. But a lot of these complex residues, right, um, from plants, like you're using whole things. For example, if you're making like a, you know, like if you're making like a, a wart, right, or that mash, right, you're adding in your raw ingredients, what you're pouring off, there's going to be kind of some silt. Like when you, okay, like, you know, basically you're making a whiskey by taking that initial fermented product and then distilling it again and again and again to remove the water to concentrate, right? Even too, like a lot of the kind of philosophy of like the spirit, right? You know, like there's a lot of it kind of goes back to alchemy and kind of like a like a like a retort or a lambic, uh, kind of like like certain kind of methods. Like you were understanding how these organic and inorganic processes were interacting, you know, through like heating and cooling, but also like like these uh, these unforeseen kind of aspects, right? It's interesting because you cut like you know. Like when you look at like examples where like the dinoflagellates, right? Um, <clears throat> these bioluminescent microbes um, in like in the Caribbean waters, right? When when the Europeans came over the Spaniards, they thought the devil was in the bay and they were shelling cannibals. So when you splash around dinoflagellates, they blew, they grow this brilliant blue, right? You could swim through it. Um, even too, there's like this anecdote where a number of um, uh, like during the Civil War, a number of soldiers were injured in a bog and. They were crawling their way out and they're glowing because you had this uh, bioluminescent bacteria that had kind of grown on and over them when they were in the swamp. And I'm sure the environment, the environmental quality before like heavy industry took off, like, you know, the when it's still the antebellum or the South hadn't industrialized yet. I'm sure the ecology was pretty nice, right? You have a lot less things floating around and denuding. So, yeah, it's kind of like the, these ethereal things. Yeah, we're like even too in um, some of Rudolf Steiner's like lectures of agriculture. <laughs> And Leighton and I, you talked about this leaf as well. <clears throat> you know, if you swap out whatever he says forces, you swap out microbes, it makes a lot of sense because you're talking about this biogeochemistry. But even too, like in, in the lecture, his understanding of microbiology says, Oh, I don't think it I don't think they have a big role. But then he even says, like, oh, I may actually be wrong, because he was someone who is sitting at the foundation of these interdisciplinary fields to kind of come into as well. So yeah, it's kind of funny, like a lot of these processes which were done and there was there was a narrative a mythology a lore that explained it 
But when you track it back, it's like, oh yeah, that's like a perfect area to kind of be like, you know, a stab, right? A stab or like, or even to a slant. So if anyone that's not done bacteria microbiology work, when you preserve a culture of fungus or bacteria, you'll kind of make a bit of agar and a little kind of uh, vial or a test tube. And then, you know, with fungi, especially you'll put in a popsicle stick, right? And the fungus doesn't really like the agar as a long-term solution. It wants to be in wood and even to longer term culture storage for agar could be as simple as just like, you know, slightly underhydrated wood shavings. So it's kind of interesting that these organisms are living in and on all these crevices, which are microscopic. I think people have an intuition with it when we talk about biochar, right? Or like, or like pumice soil where like there's this porous microstructures, which you can charge or inoculate with biology or even soak it with different nutrients to kind of imbue or hydrate as well. So yeah, it's, it's kind of funny, right? And you look at all the fermentation vessels, right? Wood, ceramic, right? These things are porous, right? You get into some of the people that talk about the bioceramics in Japan, right? You know, they're porous areas that you can kind of store these materials in and they, they're durable, right? They're recalcitrant. Um, and you talk to anyone that, you know, works in a hospital or works in microbiology research, these microbes are really hard to kill. And one of the big features is the actual structure of the material on a microscopic scale. So it's, it's pretty amazing. This is why stainless steel is so, at, is so, uh, so sought after and so good because it's a crystal, right? You know, there are little pock marks, but there aren't these little crevices and glass, the glass silicon oxide, you know, there are impurities that are, are unnoticeable to us, but when you get down under a macro lens or scan electron microscope, you can see that, Oh wow. There's actually this even to, I think one example, uh, when I was doing mushroom cultivation, you know, and like when I was first starting, like I was doing liquid culture. So doing these jars, little bioreactors of a, of a nutrient solution. And you can take, use the ball jars and reuse the collars as well as the jars themselves. But the collars, sometimes they'd rust up a bit. If they rusted, I'd have to toss it because even if I cleaned it, that rust is going to be such a higher fractal kind of surface area, which just need a little spore or a little contaminant get in there. Even if I sterilized it, they'd hang out and survive that kind of thermal shock. So yeah, like you have to conceptualize, okay, when I'm looking at something, it appears like to this aspect, but if I understand how it's going to look on the microbial scale, you know, that could be a very nice little pocket to hide out in, right? You know, if you're out in the woods, right, wilderness survival, one of the biggest things they tell you is to find like an overhang of a cliff or somewhere out of the wind, right, where you can not be exposed to the elements, like to keep yourself warm. You know, like getting back to kind of the as above is below scale invariance, like imagine if you were a microbe, you know, like as if you were wandering in the woods and trying to stay warm and survive and find food. It's very similar, probably a lot more brutal on the microbial realm. Let's say that. So, <laughs> well, you know, you, you bring up a great point about um, preservation. So the ancients always used clay and pottery as a way to. Oh, yeah. store, um, it was all they had. It was all they had. That was pretty much it. Yeah. And, and if you think about it, in many ways, those porous uh, surfaces on the inside was basically like a mucosal lining that was was probably sealing up the ability for the oxidization coming from the outside. Because let's face it, if you put water in a clay pot, eventually that water is going to leach back out. But where you're not getting those kinds of issues um, in a liquid that is not perhaps as uh, pure as water, 
um, would then actually gum up those those pockets and create this uh, protection layer uh, from letting it escape and, and preserving it for the, for thousands of years. I mean, come on, what was the what was the thing that they found most recently? Uh, some kind of jug of oil uh, that they think is like five thousand years old or something. I, I was reading it in my oh, feed. Yeah, like like so all oils that like so for example like. One thing most people don't know, like, all oil goes bad. <laughs> so after a while, like, it's no longer good as a cooking oil, but it's great as, like, a lubricant or a, as a lamp oil light, right? Um, you know, for example, like, olive oil goes bad because usually a lot of the organic compounds, aromatic compounds, which lead to the flavor, they kind of, they go rancid, like, they putrefy or maybe they'll ferment. And even, too, with honey, right? You know, like, understanding why honey, we can pull it out of, like, a tomb and it's good is because it's such a super saturated solution um, of not only just sugar, which will basically like, like salt, it will, it'll cure stuff because, you know, it'll just literally it's, it'll strip the water out of it due to osmosis. Um, but even too, honey is loaded with all these like proteins and different kind of plant residues and all these phytochemical residues from like the, from the process of like the bees fermenting it in their gut. Um, you know, and even, yeah. So it's, it's kind of crazy when you look at, when you start engineering materials that may preserve things better, right. And what you lost, but, and that's not to say that like, like, you know, the way we understood microbes was through pathology, through the study of disease, right. Um, you know, Coke kind of doing the primary, like, hypo like doing the link between pathogen to disease through animal inoculation and histology, right. Looking at cells, Louis Pasteur with coming up with, there's a certain temperature you need to heat up to resolve these different details. Like they, they, they're working within the aspect of disease, but it's been kind of an extension of like culturing them because they're pathogens and culturing them in an environment that's similar to our gut where it may be unhealthy versus other microbiologists at the time, like Sergei Winogradsky. He was like, okay, like this is good, but it's not an ecosystem. This is not how these microbes work all together and function, right? So when you look at the philosophies and a lot of the amazing advancements now are using um, these columns to kind of simulate these environmental stresses. And I think even too, like what's a lichen, right? Um, there's like, there's a really good um, quote, I think from Entangled Life where um, Merlin Sheldrake says, lichens are where organisms converge uh, into ecosystems and where ecosystems emerge into organisms or vice versa. But it's basically as a stressful event, where there forces this, this collaboration, like, like, okay, like, you know, we may not always work together, but shit, like, this is all we got. Right. I and this has happened go. again and again and again. <laughs> right. It's, it's like, it's, it's like, it's like, it's like your neighbor who maybe you don't talk to too often, but if he gets broken down, he helps you out because he realizes if he gets broken down, you're helping him out. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a, like we kind of, especially with COVID and kind of a lot of parasocial behavior with online and dynamics. Right. Like you met people because you went outside and talked to them. You didn't have these flatland facilitating it with good intention. That's the aspect too. But yeah, that's it's kind of an aspect that with these biofilms and aspects, a lot of these relationships emerged by necessity. Uh, but yeah, I can, you know, so like with lichens, think about these emergences, right? So lichen is not just a kind of frilly, brackety kind of thing, mossy looking thing on a tree, but also like, like we lichenized, you could even say symbiogenesis, the formation of multiple cells coming together. They were probably doing some kind of lichenization before that 
that that kind of aha moment or that event that forced that jump. So yeah, it's it's crazy to think about. You kind of get like very kind of philosophical or epistemological in that way, but you want to build an intuition. Intuition helps you conceptualize, right? But also too, you should think critically, but you shouldn't abandon that intuition or that under kind of deeper conceptualization for the sake of only thinking purely by logic, right? In the so case of Lycan, yeah, go ahead. It's also, you kind of, it's like uh, <laughs> stress creates this relationship, but then it also leads to the emergence of kind of the superpowers in a way, because lichens are able to produce these strong organic acids that allow them to more or less eat rocks. And that's a really, really profound and important ability in an ecosystem of, you know, soil's nice, plants nice, you know, it's nice to have organic matter decompose, but if there's nothing else available, you have an organism that can literally dissolve minerals out of rocks, absorb nutrients out of the air and then grow off of rocks and air. And, you know, that's kind of important because if you're thinking about big picture ecological succession, like how do you go from a rock to an old growth forest? It often starts with lichen because these are the organisms that can actually decompose and eat rocks. And then when they die, they've thus generated organic matter. Now, a little bit of organic matter from the lichen body can then become a substrate for early successional species, pioneer type plants to, you know, with that little bit of organic matter, that little bit of water retention, they'll grow in the cracks of the rocks that were created by the lichen. And then they grow and then they die and their bodies turn to organic matter. And then there's a little more soil. Now other plants that have greater nutrient requirements can grow there and then they get bigger and they die. And then all of a sudden it builds up, it builds up and you got a whole layer of soil and then you got plants and shrubs and trees and eventually you have a forest or whatever the climax ecosystem is and a lot of it derives from these symbiotic organisms that were able to survive in extremely nutrient limited stressful environments gaining the ability to leverage nutrients and resources out of what are otherwise very uh, uh you know uh, a nutrient poor diet I'll call it that. Hostile environments. Yeah, that's that's one of the reasons why I got so excited when I started working with the protea farm. So proteas are one of those that would have been right after the lichen because it literally lives in gravel, rock, in these high UV areas. Oh, uh, yeah. Some, some of them get more moisture than others, but there's living, living fossils, living yeah, fossils, living, right? Living fucking fossils, 300 million. They, they figured it out. They found a good strategy and why change, right? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And even too, with kind of ginkgo, um, it's kind of, you ever notice how you don't really see ginkgo trees getting eaten by insects and they're always like pretty robust and healthy. You don't really see too much blight on a ginkgo tree, maybe aside from the aspect, you know, there's, there's a pretty fascinating because of the offshoot between where plants diverged into like, you know, the huge variety of angiosperms and gymnosperms, um, you know, for whatever reason, ginkgo were a slight offshoot. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. There's a really excellent documentary on YouTube. It's a Japanese film about ginkgo and they're, they're, the way they reproduce inside their, inside the, their seeds, their flowers um, is akin to like how liverworts are lichen. So they make an internal little liquid sea where literally it'd be a one, one gamete and then a, a droplet of water would carry the gametes over. 
But for whatever reason, when angiosperms and evolved, a lot of insects chose, and a lot of the strategies that, that ginkgo has, they're resistant. And even too, it's used in a natural farming input as an antimicrobial or anti-insecticide, uh, along with like Jerusalem artichokes. So it's kind of crazy, like when you get when you get down to these living fossils, like like look at crocodiles and alligators. They haven't changed much. <laughs> turtles, sharks. But oh yeah, yeah turtles. Sh sh sharks. Sharks are older than trees. Right. Crazy. That, what? <laughs> yeah, because you know. Well, then again, like life had a life had a pretty like I think a pretty good like four hundred million year or like Leap. a few hundred million year jump start in the ocean before it decided to crawl on the land. You know. And let's not forget the neem tree, too. That's another one. Oh, yeah. It's wild. So, cool so much in the same way, like these bacteria, these fungi, they're living fossils. And, yeah, so it's, that's kind of a different way to kind of look at it. It's pretty wild. Definitely. Um, so we've covered quite a, quite a bit of ground uh, already. Uh, you guys, we've got a little bit more time. You want to you wanna dive down um, – a little bit more of how much the, how much time do we have because i think we got some questions that some people have starred which we yeah we usually answer, but... we usually uh hit up questions at 1 30 so we got about 16 okay, cool. to talk. Um, can i uh say yeah, something about we we mentioned glomalin a few times earlier yep and uh just to get into the weeds of of science here uh this is something interesting i learned a few years back is we hear a discussion of glomalin it's like this sticky protein like thing that the uh, you know the certain mycorrhizae produce but glomalin uh is it's something that we call uh, an operationally defined substance meaning that it doesn't it's not actually a real thing it doesn't actually exist because like you you couldn't draw out like here's the chemical structure of glomalin it's got this many carbon rings connected it's it's a substance that's defined by taking a sample like a soil sample and using a certain type of extraction method where you're taking your sample and mixing it with certain chemicals with a certain ph and temperature and then the material that comes out when you do that is glomalin so i think this is kind of an important concept to understand and kind of getting back into the like Nature doesn't necessarily make itself easy to define. And even though we have like terms and phrases about things, it doesn't mean you can point the like, that is that. And it's actually the same thing for, uh, for humic acid, fulvic acid. Humic substances are also operationally defined. They're not real chemicals with real structures. They're things that are, you take a soil sample, I, and I believe it's a, I'm getting, I'll probably get this mixed up. It's either glomalin or, or humic acid. It's like a alkaline copper heated extraction method where it's like you're you're adding like a copper oxide, raising the pH to a certain level and then heating it to a certain temperature. And whatever comes out when you do that, that's humic acid. And then there's like a follow-up size separation and that's fulvic acid. So for a lot of the really kind of important molecules that we talk about with like building soil, soil structure, they're purely operationally defined. And so it's, it's interesting because I think sometimes it's easy to assume that we talk about a substance and that that's like a real thing that someone could give you a jar of like, here's a jar of pure this. And if we put it into a, you know, a mass spectrometer, it'll come out and it'll have this chemical structure. But a lot of times these things are just 
if we take a substance and then we add these chemicals, change the temperature and the pH, and liquid extract comes out, and that liquid extract we call this. And it kind of blew my mind when I first learned that because I'd been using these terms for years and just assumed that they were actual, you know, real molecules. But they're well, didn't, didn't, they, these... didn't they rename it uh, glomulin related soil protein? Oh, yeah. it's EPS. Yeah. Like, well, there's, yeah, there's, yeah. yeah so the fact is, like, go, go ahead, Craig. Yeah. The, yeah. It's, it's more general and it's more, um, it's, it's more a total combination. Like, yeah, I think, like, what could be extracted out similarly, like Sid Kamalin has talked about, is like, oh, it's like an iron oxide. It's a red color. So when they were able to, like, you know, extract it, which they're doing redox chemistry on and resolve something from it. Okay. This is like the first inkling, right? Prime research, but you know, as fungi have gotten more popular and the fact like mycorrhizal fungi, Oh, soil stability and carbon sequestration, which is true. You realize, Oh, it's just this continuum of biological matter and organic matter, just like living, non-living in between and being incorporated. Right. And like the turnover and uptake on the microbial realm is like pretty crazy. Um, you know, we think about, you know, a lot of what we do in our body is like getting food or organic matter that we can eat ready to be digested. And even too, a lot of people that are living like very traditional lifestyles, their microbiomes help tune it in to make it digestible, right? You have, I think some of the Hadza or another uh, kind of indigenous, well, an, another, an, an, a number of, uh, uh, people in Africa that are living very close, like traditional lifestyle. They've been living for several thousand years um, where they're eating these tubers from the forest, like these roots. And these things are like, it's, it's like leather. And like, and like, if you were to eat it, you'd get like very just like you're eating like a chair, but because these people have these unique tailored microbiomes along with cooking it, they're able to ferment and break it down more effectively. So it's like this tunability, which is really amazing. So, yeah, you think about like much in the biofilm of the soil, there's the biofilm in your gut, you know, there's, and even too, with these populations, there's, you know, like, um, you know, for example, one of the biggest things they talk about, what was, what, what's, what's the test Leighton where they measure uh, evolution of, uh, of a gas, the, the Braden test, the one we've talked about, it, it can be problematic and if misunderstood if yeah. by itself alone. Yeah. I, I, don't have my finger on the name, but yes, you're close. And yeah, uh, yeah. Um, any, any test. Any test. Yeah, yeah. So, for example, think about this, right? If, and we know this in urban soils, right? I actually saw some research from some people at Urban Soils a Symposium a couple years back that urban soils, a lot of techno soils, um, a, a lot of the organic matter gets off gas. They're finding out that when it heats up, you're basically incubating the soil and the, the microbes wake up and eat it up and off gas it up. But there might be some pockets due to a buildup or even two, you need to make biofilms because it will protect the bacteriophages, which will then basically control the population. Right. And what happens too is like this, this, the, like the, the, the biofilm in the soil, these extracellular polymetric substances, all this gunk and goo is like that incubating that protective chamber that, allows them to maintain stasis or not activate too early. And we know in our gut, right? Um, like, why do you need fiber? Fiber is essential to feed the microbes in your gut, right? Keep like, rather than just kind of to keep movements regular, they basically feed the microbes maintaining these copulations. Turns out if you 
don't, if you don't eat too much fiber or you're deficient in it, um, you know, I think we all know like the anecdote effects of not getting enough fiber and, you know, aspect as well. But what will happen is the actual bacteria in your gut will eat away at the mucosal lining that covers your intestines. And so what prevents the bacteria from eating all the way down to the bottom embedded in your mucosal lining are these bacteriophages, these bacterial viruses, which will keep the population in check. Um, the reason why um, the entire ocean is not covered in a, in a green or red tide or different algae is because these viruses that kill them as quickly as they grow up. It's only in certain areas where like in the Gulf of Mexico or like, or a spill where there's a certain sudden influx of, of nutrients all of a sudden, right? Like artificial aspect that they pop up, but that leads like to an dead ox, an anoxic dead zone because the bodies build up and tie up all the oxygen. So yeah, there's a lot of these crazy threads, right? And I think about, like I talked about earlier, like you can imagine that a gut is like a root system turned inside out or, or invaginated, right? Like think of all the root hairs sticking out, all the interacting points for the for the mycorrhizal fungi, for the decomposer fungi that nets with those mycorrhizal fungi, um, with the rhizobium bacteria that make an infection thread and modify it, and then all the nematodes, and it just it's you know it's it's crazy to think about, you know, it's right. it, there's a lot of yeah, it's it, that intuition and understanding can help kind of lead to a better granularity, but yeah, so I forgot what the original question was. About, I tend to do uh, that guts and gas and microbes every everything's an ecosystem everything's an ecosystem the environment is a big gut it's basically what a lot of something the other day talking about uh gut microbes and gases and it was like the two main types of organisms that live inside of the gut that produce gases are methanogens and the sulfate reducing bacteria. So these organisms produce the gases methane and hydrogen sulfide. And they exist in different abundances in different people's guts. Medical researchers try to tie like this bacteria is related to this disease. I, I wasn't getting that into it. I was more just reading, oh, okay. So some people have more sulfide producing things in their gut. Some people have more methane producing things in their gut. Some people have more or less of both. And these are smelly gases. And maybe this was like the, the, the young immature part of my mind started lighting up. And I was like, this is why people's farts smell different. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I'm into that. Some people Yeah, do. what is it? It's it's like for the for the for the gas that comes out of your stove, they have to add an odorant. Because pure the pure methane by itself doesn't smell like anything. Um, and even too with the gasoline they put in your car, the diesel, they have to add an odor into it. Um, which, you know, I kind of like the smell of, you know, you know, the gas smells good. I don't know. It's, I guess, you know, when you become a, like a, when you're a compost coordinator, you become a bit of a trash sommelier, you are a fine pal. Well, it's like, if you ever got in a truffle, right? Like an actual truffle and cut it and you smell it. And it was funny. I was actually at this uh, event, um, over the weekend. It was like a kind of like a tasting menu for mushrooms and some people that were like really into like, you know, gastronomy and cooking. They made like a truffle brulee creme thing. It was great. Um, but then we have the actual truffle and it's like a whole truffle. Like I've only touched one like once before. They're expensive, like, like hundreds of dollars. 
passing it around and people are like, oh, a truffle. And they get right up in it and they smell it. They're like, oh, like it's overwhelming, right? You know, um, it's it's kind of like that, you know, it's, I don't know, the, the, the nose knows, but like, you know, there, there's, there's a good funk and there's a bad funk, right? You know, it's like, you know, I, I think, you know, let's, let's, let's like definitely pour a little out for all the homies that figured out what you can and can't eat <laughs> and what you can and can't pickle. Or, you know, you just, not yet. We're, we're working on it. <laughs> so you guys want to touch on phases before we get into uh, the questions? Because I'm sure a lot of the audience really doesn't get what phase is. So maybe you can expand a little on that one. Dif- uh, phases of water? Phases. Phases. Oh, phage. Yeah, right. yeah, phage. Leaf, do you want to take it away? I've, I've been running my gob a little too much. so I uh, Phages are types of viruses, right? Yep, phages are specifically uh, viruses that target bacteria only, right? And you know, and they don't, they don't, they don't affect us largely because you know we're multicellular. We've actually evolved mechanisms to protect us from very simple free-floating RNA or DNA, which are a component largely in these viruses, right? But they target specifically from bacteria, and they control these populations. And there's a there's a there's a there's a kind of cycle called uh, the ligno is it like a lysolytic cycle lysogenic. what happens is that lysogenic cycle right <clears throat> so you know we know there are some viruses that will ret- or retroviruses that will actually incorporate their dna into the the, the genome of the host right um we know this with like certain viruses like human pabloviruses or herpes or you know, certain retroviruses in general that you know you'll express it under stress right it's it's a strategy where we'll incorporate uh, and there's many viruses that do that in general, like analogy. So for the bacteria, right? Bacteria are really kind of very simple. Um, they have this kind of like peanut-shaped, like kind of funfetti, confetti little genome, this little chromatin uh, material, and they have these like circular cassettes in the material. But it's basically like a little pill, like a like a like a like a like a, like a plastic like pill, like or like a, or a pill box. And what happens is that, you know, this, this bacteriophage, this phage will land down and it almost looks like a moon lander. It will sit down and it'll inject genetic information into the virus. And it'll inject, it, the virus, will, the phage will inject genetic information into the bacteria. And then it will hijack the natural uh, molecular re, uh, mechanisms that maintain expressed genes and incorporates information. And then based upon the environment, the, the population density of um these uh bacteria right if there's a if let's say there's a bloom oh this nitrogen got dumped in the water we're going to blow up there's a certain molecular trigger which basically is a kind of quorum sensing like sense who's there that will trigger the viral elements been incorporated into the dna of the bacterium to then start expressing itself and the little viruses will get made inside of the bacteria then will burst and they'll basically release out and they'll either land on their viruses maybe they'll just sit in a biofilm somewhere but it's this natural kind of wax and wane. Uh, and you can kind of see this in similar kind of, uh, you know, statistical models of like populations of like rabbits over time, right? There's a certain amount of food available. There's, and that's kind of like biostatistics, right? So this thing's like in mathematics, there are certain like just numbers, rules in the universe, just larger patterns that are there when you, when you zoom out, right. You know, um, you know, kind of reality, like, the lysogenic viruses, that's or the life cycles in contrast to where it's called a lytic or lytic lifestyle, which is mm. based on the word lice. And the word lice means to like break or rupture. So 
lytic like viruses in the lytic cycle they just infect their host and blow them up and create more viruses immediately for the lysogenic phase the viruses are like craig said incorporating their dna or rna into the host genome and just kind of you know staying in there for generations until it's opportune to burst them and it's also important because we talked about horizontal gene transfer i mentioned plasmids earlier and then craig also mentioned just like <laughs> loose genetic material floating around the bacteria pickup but viruses are also an important vector for horizontal gene transfer so sometimes it's not like completely negative it's like a virus could be transferring a beneficial trait from one bacteria to another and they're also one of the mechanisms through which this all occurs mm -hmm. but uh you know with when we, phages yeah they're a type of virus i think it's important to Keep in mind when we're talking about science and we get into more like complex science uh, discussions, there's a lot of like complicated terms and a lot of terms in science are basically equivalent to a more common word that you probably are already familiar with. And sometimes people will be like, why do they have to use so many big, confusing, complicated words? And the thing is, usually more complex terms are that way because they're more specific. And when you're getting into kind of a more nuanced discussion, these terms are useful because you can say one word instead of saying, you know, a virus that does this and this and this. It's like we're talking about a bacteriophage, which uh, it's funny because I've heard some like <coughs> Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's he thinks astrophysics is the best because they use terms like like, you know, giant star and blue dwarf. And he talks trash about biologists because they use complicated terms. But it's like you need to use complicated terms in biology sometimes because it reduces the number of words you, you can use. But I say that in the sense of like I wouldn't be intimidated just because you hear someone using big biology words. Because if you if you look them up, you know, usually it's not something that's super complicated. It's just a different language, you know, and it's like if you're listening to someone speaking Spanish or French, what they're saying probably isn't like super necessarily super sophisticated or complicated. You just, you just don't have that vocabulary. And so looking up what the term means, it's an important step because before I got into doing more like hands-on research in certain microbiology, I approached it from an amateur standpoint at a younger age. And I would read papers where I'm like, I, I know that I don't know what half of these words mean, but I'll still just read it and create a placeholder in my mind of what I think that means. And then after enough time, it starts to become more clear, like, oh, that's referring to this even though I didn't like necessarily have the formal training at the time to understand all that. And in a way that almost improves your learning process, because if you're someone who just, you know, goes to college and learns all the technical terminology when you're 18 and then moves on and doesn't have to go through the struggle of kind of trying to like piece it together yourself. Um, I think there's a benefit to going through that struggle in terms of having a more like creative and innovative and, you know, unique individualistic way of approaching the knowledge. And, you know, while we do need, and we need in this planet, we need people who are just like the super experts who get all the formal training. We also need a lot of people who have more of the, like, I came upon it in my own way and have my own kind of unique understanding while still recognizing that, you know, scientific authority is important. Uh, you, you don't want to just dismiss all the, you know, experts and their rigid thinking just because they haven't gone through a more unique path, but all of them are important. Kind of like the importance of diversity and the soil 
food web and the microcosmos and the more diversity we have and you know people's capabilities and what they can think of uh probably the more capable will be a, as a species of dealing with the various challenges related to preserving and creating and regenerating our environment in a way that creates a more uh you know healthy and robust and beautiful life so well well put yeah. well put and i love the the creative and, and solution oriented approach to reading um i had a very similar uh, experience when i first started reading white papers and it was like <clears throat> after a certain time you see that word so many times you stop and you look it up and then you're like oh now i get it you do that repeatedly and all of a sudden now it's crystal clear what they're trying to explain and then what's even cooler if you really <coughs> want to go down the rabbit hole of that paper is you look up all the sightings so all the different sightings are all the pieces of the puzzle that led to that paper um and that too helps you really understand more about the subject because now you understand how they got to the point where they did even discuss this topic right like it's all building blocks to get there so yeah i i try to encourage people to read white papers but most times they'll try to read one and throw it away or give up because it is complicated yeah it's a challenge because we only have so much time in our day and so much uh, mental capacity but yeah you know, looking up a citation is important. I think it just gets into like epistemology and like, where is your knowledge coming from? And how certain are you of this knowledge, which Craig, Craig kind of referenced early in our conversation of the difference between uh, understanding and knowing and mm -hmm. that, um, you know, understanding is probably more beneficial than trying to know because I, and I say this from the perspective of I've published research before that I'll get a notification that's like your paper was cited and I'm like awesome it's good it's good for my uh, you know my metrics and then I read the paper that cited my paper and I'm like they shouldn't have cited my paper what they're saying my paper is not proving what they said there I, I'm not going to complain give me a citation but yeah just because you read something in a scientific paper doesn't mean it's true or it has good evidence either because if, if you look at like we're making this statement because we cited this paper and then you go look up the paper it's citing you can sometimes be like hey that paper didn't really say what they're suggesting it did and it's a bit of a rabbit hole uh but you know at the end of the day it gives me more uh, humility about like being careful about making definitive statements I, you know i try to you might have noticed me before be like this is speculative don't quote me on this and yeah. you know and actually i'll i'll you know in this with this disclaimer don't believe what i'm saying just because i said it if you think it's a cool idea and you want to go out and start applying it, like look it up. Make sure that what I'm saying isn't bullshit. You know, it's a yep. agreed. It's 100%. good practice. And worse, yeah, yes. Um, and I think one big thing about it is like understanding why you're doing it, right? I think one problem that I've heard a lot uh, for some people I know that are researchers, like some students that come fresh out of undergrad, like even or even out of like a you know, like even from a prestigious university, right? Um, this was even on our podcast, Damon Tai, our friend who um, who does a lot of amazing work, worked for the Joint Genome Institute during the Human Genome Project, a lot of extracting, a lot of technical detail. It's like, oh, yeah, you came from Stanford, and you don't know why we're doing this, right? Like, if, when you assess grades just for what's in the book, but, like, you know, you don't understand, like, kind of the deeper conceptual process of why we're doing this thing, right? Rather than just, oh, well, the man... Oh, we lost. He muted, no, he muted himself. Oh, yeah, I know. But it's like, yeah, like, you know, you, 
like when you pick that up, man, I was quick on Ken. That was like, whoa. Yeah, wasn't uh, it? But yeah, like if, if you're just following like a list, um, you know, you're not thinking about why you're doing it, right? Yeah, so that's one big thing about it. So, you know, when, and that's the thing about it. If you're, and then once, one trait I try to teach is to engage, right, and kind of tease something that's advanced on the horizon that that person has to build that bridge or paddle out to get there and kind of causes you to, you know, you have to, you have to earn it. Right. You have, you know, you know, it's the whole thing about it. It's like, not just like, okay, like, okay, I'm going to cram for this thing and just learn it out of my head. No, like there's a process to it. And the kind of experience, like experience can be the best teacher when informed with the right theory. So, and one other disclaimer, because I think this is important too. You'll often hear me say, this is what we know now. Because I've had so many times in my life where I've read something and it was concrete data up until that point. And then along comes a test three years later that proves that that was bullshit, like the carbon sequestering systems. There's a number of these examples that within the last five years has basically uh, racked the the foundation of of understanding or knowledge of what has been taught uh, for, for a long period of time. It goes back to dogma and not wanting to change every textbook. and So there's a lot more to it. But just understand, if you read something today, it very well may be in the near future that the, what that was stating was either incorrect or not complete. So, again, science is a very uh, osmotic or in motion uh, science, for lack of better words. So we're at a... Hour 37, hour one, one hour and 37 minutes. Uh, Ken, you want to uh, go ahead and fire off those questions and uh, we'll see where it goes from there. Sure. Uh, Dead Folk Flower has the first one here. Uh, what kind of housing should we be thinking about putting into the soil? I use pumice and biochar as an apartment for biology in my mind. Was curious if anyone has other. Uh, options or insights on this hell yeah uh it's called compost and and in different sizes including chips um organic matter is a wonderful condominium um that's how i've been so successful in turning dirt into soil was the fact that i'm taking compost i'm washing it breaking it apart into these small little particulate screening and vibrating them putting them back in suspension in a liquid form and then applying them. So each one of those tiny little particulates, um, I I refer to it as chocolate water because it's so turbid, you can't see through it. So that's all those little particulate that make that, so you can't see through it, are are those condominiums or those cities. And you know, the bigger the particulate, the more it's close to a city where some of those super fine particulate are more like a house or condominium. So compost, and compost extracts are a wonderful vehicle uh, or a wonderful housing technique for sure. You guys want to add anything? Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Like, if anyone's like made compost or sifted it, uh, you're overs, right? Like, the little bits of wood chips that get through in detail, take some of that and throw it in because you're going to add like a fraction of the soil. And, like I mentioned earlier, like a stab or a slant, like, like the preferred medium for a lot of these microbes, especially fungi, is in a matrix of things, right? Especially if they're decomposers. Um, so yeah, it's understanding that like it when you dig down in the soil, it's not this perfect 
sifted blend that exists. There's all these different fractions. Heck, of um, you know, know anyone that's like had like you know upstate in the Northeast New England, like field stones, right? <laughs> so many of those. A lot of the brick walls because people were trying to clear stuff out, and you have all these rocks, but they're providing all this structure, preventing the soil from compacting. Um, you know, through as it went through national succession, but yeah, cut overs those little bits of wood chips and stuff. Uh, you know, you don't have to throw in the fruit stickers, you know, make sure you take out the twist ties or stuff like that. Um, but yeah, like those little, those little bits of wood chip or organic matter, they're really more your friend because they're going to provide that diversity because they have the, the you know, they, they're going to provide that surface area. Lee? That was a good answer. I don't have anything to add. Okay, Leaf, we got a something going on with your microphone. Oh, jeez. You know what? Leaf, bounce and come right back. That usually fixes it. Yeah. Cool. All right, well, hopefully we answered his question. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to wait for Leaf to come back for the next question? Uh, uh, we can start. We can start on it. Actually, I got a good answer for it because it's actually a – a similar thing uh, as well. Do you want to read it out, Ken? Yeah, go ahead and put it up. And when he, here he is. Okay. You doing? Here, okay, cool. I Try your mic now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but no, those are good answers. Uh, th those are good. I don't have anything to add. Cool. Can you pull, pull that back up again, Ken? The next yep. one? There we go. Uh, I think there are some great KNF inputs. But is all that brown sugar actually natural farming? Yeah, so that's a big kind of question in general. Um, and that's something definitely that Jadam sought to address. You know, because the aspect, too, is you have to live in an area where, like, sugar is produced. Uh, sugar was, like, actually developed in, I think, in Southeast Asia. Um, you know, that kind of kind of grass was brought over. And, yeah, it's, it's a refining process. You need it. So ask yourself, like, how did people get sugar before there was sugar cane? Um, maple sugar, you know, even too, there's actually some history up, up in the Northeast about where there were people that had community guilds and making maple sugar. If you actually get your maple syrup um, and you get it super hot and you literally pour it in while it's hot and get in, get in like a, get in like a mixer, like a bowl mixer, keep it frothing, it'll literally crystallize, right? So there's other ways to get sugar as well, um, you know, but that is that is kind of a big uh, critique um, because you have to import it and use it, um, you know, and there is some variance. There are like other ways, but there's other sugar sources. That's one example, but you need to have enough means to kind of tap trees and get enough syrup. And I don't know if you, anyone's ever like made sugar as well. It can kind of add it up. Um, so beet sugar, sugar beets, uh, beet sugar is made as a very industrial process. You could, um, you know, and I've, even using white sugar, uh, there's some people that have done a mix of it in general. Um, the whole principle of it, let's understand why are we using sugar, right? Um, like, well, it's a curative, right? Like it's when you cure meat, when you like bacon, when you add in like the salt and sugar and brine of it, you're pulling out the water. Um, you're basically making the microbes fight and you're selecting for a certain range that can survive in that aspect and notion at the trade-off of presenting the organic matter, like the meat or the plant material from kind of like totally going to mush. Um, so there's a trade-off. So you can use different sources. Um, but yeah, if you're in the Northeast, uh, maple sugar, it does require a lot of fair aspects. But I feel like that's why, like a lot of the, this is why like um, Jadam 
Master Cho's son thought to think, think big, thick, uh, kind of move past sugar and rice because a lot of people in the world don't even access to have sugar and rice, but they got access to potatoes. Um, there's a ton of sugar and starch and potatoes. I think even people that ain't done any kind of mushroom cultivation before and they're dirt broke, um, instead of going out and buying sugar, you'll just make potato dextrose. You'll just get a bunch of potatoes, chop them up, boil them. And, and the wart left over the water is loaded with sugars because it's starch sitting there, um, you know, making the sugar and crystallizing, granularizing it down, um, you know, different properties, but it's understanding why you're doing it. But yeah, that, that is a fair question. Um, but you know, it's what's available um, in that notion. And then where it originated, like sugar is produced in that part of the world pretty readily. And, you know, and you figure like Korea, has a very similar climate to the north to the United States, like Northeast Mid Atlantic, uh, but further south, like to base Southeast Asia, you got sugar, and then you go further south, the Caribbean, Cuba, Puerto Rico, sugar plantation are. So it, there are regional components, um, but it's understanding those minutia, right? That's the concept too. Yeah, so you need understanding. A, you need a preservative. You need a preservative. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not saying use salt instead. No, because um, it's up your microbes. Yeah, well, but but even too like fish sauce, right? Like, um, you know, instead of making IMO, when we talk about making fish amino acids, right? Um, or even too, when you look at like uh, fermented plant juice, right? You're using the sugar. And there, there's uh, it's called a chong like in Korea. It's literally making a. Uh, it's a way that they had leftover fruits. Uh, they would preserve the fruits. They would add sugar into it, and you make a syrup. And it's a fermentation kind of aspect. So it's called the chong. It's the Korean word for it. We call it fermented plant juice in English. Um, kind of the, the language barrier, you know, a notion as well. But the reality is like like fish, like uh, what is it? Um, fish amino acids, you're adding sugar based in, but even to salt fish, right? Um, you can render it even to like, we're talking about fish, fish, fish hydrolysate or fish emulsion, right? The way people make fish sauce and traditionally, they would get a crock, they'd get some saltwater fish, and they would submerge it and keep it down. And the salt that's in the fish and the microbes and then anaerobic environment would select it. But Lord help you if that crock breaks. Holy crap. Because, you know, the way you get the oyster sauce or fish sauce is that after that process, they reduce it down. Uh, like like in the way that someone makes like a super fancy dancy like a sauce or butter, you extract it and then boil off the water and you get a higher concentrated kind of resiny kind of goopy solution right uh like a, kind of like a vinaigrette you know that kind of notion so yeah it's but yeah that's the short answer yes sugar is a thing but there are other ways of working with it but also too there are lots of different opportunities um you know that you don't have to just use knf alone there's biointensive it's a whole con it's a whole galaxy a whole plane of all these constellations of solutions which you know with the constraints of your budget or availability you can kind of work that patchwork right yeah i think i think the important thing to note is that you don't want to be using salt in these prep microbial preparations because you're going backwards right we're trying to eliminate salt in the soil solution so again that's why sugar was chosen because sugar uh, is beneficial to bacterial growth um, whether it's selective or not where salt is going to uh, cut back your protozoa and your you carry oats, so you don't want to go there. And Leaf, did you want to add something to that as well? Yeah, probably less practical, but um, taking it back to the very beginning of our conversation when you're asking about if viruses are alive, and I was like, what is life? 
Uh, you know, yeah, nature I, is a similar term. Yeah. What is natural? What is nature? Can you define it? And uh, it's it's a it's a blurry line. So I think in this context, related to what Craig was mentioning, maybe it's like, is this truly natural versus is this an abundant resource that's available here that is inexpensive and doesn't cause damage to the environment and is sustainable and regenerative, et cetera. And so from like a practical perspective, maybe, you know, does it pass the purity test as being something you could just go pick out of the forest or something is not as relevant as is it something that's cheap and abundant and not environmentally detrimental to use? Well said. Mm -hmm. Have you guys ever uh, uh, heard of people using uh, EM, uh, the effective microorganisms, uh, instead of sugar? Because I've heard that uh, that actually does work. Yeah, so there's molasses in the EM solution. So, so usually when you're getting the EM by itself, like Terraganic sells it, like the regular EM, um, it's usually, it's kind of wheat bran, molasses and lactobacillus and yeast. And if you're getting the fancier, the pro EM, which does, because it's a, it's a nutritive product, it's a probiotic product. They have to verify containers that'll have the lactobacillus, the yeast and the purple sulfur, uh, bacteria, the rhodocytomustris palustris. Uh, but yeah, there is some molasses in there. So there is some sugar. Um, however, um, that biofilm that's made might more effectively allow to be established with minimal sugar, right? That could be another thing as well. That could allow mm -hmm. you to use starch or the brand, right? Um, to allow it to kind of simulate a matrix of a biofilm, which would then similarly kind of function to kind of do what that per preservative way as well. Um, because the reality is once you get the biofilm going, they're going to be exuding other, the other, these details, right? Um, you know, so it's, it's a kind of thing, even to look at, um, look like a Koji, right. Asperil, Aspergillus arise, which, you know, is used to make, um, you know, soy sauce or miso, um, and people now are even coating meats with it, right. People are coating vegetables and fruits to kind of see how like, you can really pull out these flavors. And the reason why you get such a strong umami flavor from koji or soy sauce or miso is because the fungus is metabolizing the proteins to amino acids, right? Um, you know, the reason why, like, um, you know, when a Parmesan cheese, those little crystals, there's MSG in there, there's MSG in tomato when you reduce it. But what you're doing is it's just literally the amino acid with, with a sodium ion, right? It's, it's, it's the, it's the, uh, it's not the ester. It's, it's the base conjugate in that notion. But reality is there's, you could have, uh, monosodium alanine, monosodium tryptamine, right? There's 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 20 proteogenic amino acids in combinations, but these are the building blocks of proteins. This is why when you taste that umami flavor, it's literally saying, "Hey, these are the building blocks for us. This is good. Finish it, right? You know, it's <laughs> it's pretty intuitive and instinctive, right? Like, why do more work? Why synthesize de novo? Right there, man. Go get them." <laughs> I want to go cook some miso soup for dinner now. Right? Oh, nice. <laughs> well, we'll jump back into the questions here. Uh, let's see. Where did the shrub seeds come from? Now, this was a conversation mm -hmm. in the chat uh, where they were trying to figure out where, you know, you've got. Uh, well, the I think it was, I think their thing was, well, what came first, the plant or the seed? Well, yeah, they got it in the chicken and the egg, and, right, and, that and that's, as well. that's where that's where we ended up with a mid-succession shrub, but it would go all the way back to the lichen. 
So the yes. lichen had to start to allow for plants uh, or soil building so plants could evolve into the soil, connect with more microbes that were evolving in the water, coming ashore, and creating these uh, successionary plant systems. So yeah, I'm not holding the whole uh, evolutionary timeline of all the domains of life in my mind. I, I, I should study more so I can. But and you know, if you're talking <laughs> about like a a, a rock face, uh, they could be coming from bird poop. Is one place the animals uh, wind the different different vectors to get them around. But yeah, yeah. when it's and back in the legion, and, and that's all there was before there was birds, etc. That's where they're they're coming. Like, where the hell did this come from? But then you look at quorum sensing and creating biology that doesn't exist in the soil system by the biology getting together and figuring it out and creating yep. it. Well, you know, it goes back to what's first, chicken or the egg. Well, yeah, it egg. was obviously the, the chicken was a mutated version of the parent bird <laughs> because the bird ate something funny or fucked a different bird or whatever. Over, over, over millions of generations. <laughs> that's just 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 like because well i just think back to like there's like who's that one like it was like the crop you've seen the crocodile cray it was like it was like very on the nose hand wavy like evolution's real where's like the duck crocodile hybrid like it's just is like yeah like but you, you it's not you need to stretch the time frame out but if you're viewing earth is well, only five thousand exactly years old it's you called know, a platypus <laughs> well, yeah, 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 yeah. It's just like, why? Just because that worked. Okay, cool, neat. It's like you know, but I'm I'm putting my money on the egg coming first because there had to have been some bird that was very similar to a chicken, but not technically a chicken. But then it laid an egg that had whatever genetic recombination that whatever hatched out of that was a chicken. So I think I don't think the I don't think the other way works. I think it has to be that the egg came first. Well, of course, for that species. But when you go back all the way, it's like, all right, well, what was it that caused the ability for that first bird to lay the first egg? Well, it, that goes it, wow down the hole you go. So like it, it all comes from like it. <laughs> Birds came from the. So you have to, you have to you have to have like environment. You know that is advantageous, right? Like the amniotic, right? Like you know, like think about the biofilm. You have to have all those nutrients where it's warm mm -hmm. and incubated, right? And that aspect, even too with seeds, right? When seeds land in the ground, right? It turns out that drying seeds may not be the best. That it might be best to store seeds in the soil where they fall, and then right temperature and humidity in general, because there's even microbes that transfer, you know, vertically inside the seed that are in the parent and get incorporated into the actual germ and then so it's and those are plant growth promoters things like that but yeah yeah i think the idea to wind it back it's like um you know the like the like what sex right sex was useful because you can make more novelty right because pr previously it was about just you know asexual reproducing right um you know there's animals like like trypanosomes they're crazy they're kind of like a weird um, like like a weird protozoa nematode thing, and they can reproduce sexually and asexually. And the way they do it, they divide like the top. They're like a Y thing, but then when they have sex, like like the female or equivalent 
uh, trypanosome makes a cleft and the male slides into it. And it's like kind of gross. But yeah, but the thing is, in an environment, the more genetically deep... This is a very clinical explanation, my good sir. Is I can make anything unsexy if I wanted to. <laughs> like I can expound on it, and just make it clinical in that way aspect. No, but but the reality is like why? Like so, okay, what 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 necessity was there for the egg, right? If if you could just make a copy yourself, right? Oh well, maybe more diversity to fight against viruses, right? More chance to make these new features, right? Um, you know, so it's that whole aspect. Well, think about this, like what was before birds? Well, we, 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 the, the hypothesis that the birds evolved from dinosaurs or small reptiles that survived the extinction event. Right. And like, and the theory is that we came from mammals that could hide and survive the extinction event. Right. What was before that? More important. Platypus. Mammal that lays an egg. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, well, no, but, well, well, no. What I'm that's the thing. There was a time where it's like, oh man, crap. Okay, like, um, so like, I, I can't if I if I have a, a litter of pups, I can't swim away as fast from predators, but I can lay them. You go back, right? That's the whole thing. It's it's the like the, the pressures of the environment do that, but like that's the guess. So what was before the dinosaurs, right? Like like what crawled out of the sea like a, a fish thing right yeah and then or what started like, things in the sea maybe it was the genetic code that started in the water that landed on our planet and created the beginning oh yeah of life. totally well yeah and, it's, well that's yeah. thing that's, well, that's thing about it too is like well not even that like like uh, pan uh, pan pan polar polymeria the polymers oh. like the like the the the, the primary details it might have been that earth was the best condition that these organic compounds floating around asteroids hit you know like like the whole like uh primordial ooze like you know, like the electric mm-hmm. experiment where like they they conduct and shock it and you get in those aspects it's chaos that's the thing about it we'd like to think that things are very linear and clean cut no it's just chaos yeah. like um it was the yeah, genetic but, code for that chicken actually in the water already when it landed here so it was just waiting for the right components and the right circumstances to come together to create the first chicken. Well, to, to, to get there, to get and there. Well, here's a, well, here's well, here's a crazy thing. Here's a crazy thing. Um, so in chickens, we can turn on genes that will mm-hmm. turn their beak into teeth. Okay. Yeah, we, we, yeah, because we see similarities in reptiles. If they start breathing they, fire, they, we're really in trouble. Okay, Leighton's oh, yeah. trying to get something out. Leighton, what do you have th- th- Thankfully, there's not enough oxygen in the atmosphere for that. No, um, so- if, if, if if there was enough oxygen in the atmosphere to breathe fire like that, we'd have millipedes that are 9 or 12 feet long. You know, that there'd be other problems to worry about. And also just lighting a cigarette, <laughs> might, lighting a cigarette might be a bit more of an affair. You know, so that's that also too. You know, especially with all this organic matter floating around. All I was trying to say is an egg is just biofilm dried out. Yeah. Yeah. An evolutionary process. They laid blobs. That didn't work. So they let the blobs dry in the sun, and that created the shell that prevented the other pests from getting to their... Generation, right? Like, yep. So, And that's just the, you know, so it's... I think we have one last one. Yeah. Uh, it's directed for me. Uh, like I like Vermiculite. What are Craig's thoughts on it? 
Um, so vermiculite, I think, um, yeah, it's, it's useful, but I think a lot of people are not the biggest fan of it because it's mined from a, a certain source and it's finite. Um, you know, but it's useful, right? If you have like, if you have it in your shed or you go to a garden center and it's on sale, you know, like, sure. You know, like, you know, but also do this other options as well. Like, you know, I'm just, I, I think, I think some people in the kind of, uh, like regenerative organic community because it is an extra it's like azomite right it's a it's a, azomite's a mineral source mined from one area where it's composite but you know if you apply azomite continuously you know you can get that nutrient lock in some ways even too i think with biochar you can over add biochar right um yeah don't be a moron yeah don't don't add it on so but but yeah like you know it's not verboten like oh thou shall not use vermiculite if you got it and it's around and it's sitting around it's like I bought a bag of gypsum for like for for uh, like a like a forty pound bag of gypsum for like adding in a little gypsum into my my cultures for mushroom cultivation or my agar. I've had that same forty pound bag of gypsum for the past like eight years because I only use a little bit at a time, right? You know, but it it depends, right? But I think if you're if you're growing and using a lot of it, there are other alternatives um, to it. I know some people um, use like biochar or other kind of ways to bring it in larger particles, charcoal. But, you know, it's, it's about being aware um, what you got, right? Just, you know, nothing should be like a, Yeah, yeah, just like, it just there's, we have the internet. You have the Library of Alexandria in your pocket. Pretty wild. You know, it's like, you need Google, you can search. And then, heck, now, like, you even have uh, AI, which you can help you search and resolve things, right? Um, you know, just, you know, it's not the end of the world. You know, we're pretty creative. We got thumbs and social skills. That's why we're here today. <laughs> thumbs up yeah leaves up man you haven't so. said anything much so oh yeah I, you know it's, it's a, lot, a lot of conversation here just to go on that same concept plastic is really useful sometimes i, I don't try yeah. to use it if i don't need it but like sometimes it's like i want a plastic bag for this <laughs> and if i try to use something else it's not going to work or doing lab work you know i know people who are like oh, i hate wasting all these pipette tips but i'm like if I reuse this pipette tip and contaminate a culture and then have to restart a whole experiment, that little bit of plastic was probably worth it to use there. And so it's all, it's, you know, it's cost benefit analyses and risk assessments and things like that, or how we should think about this. And, you know, I think being a purist of like, we're going to move past using any of this ever can be a little bit, um, you know, small minded and, you know, not pedantic picture. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, plastic, great for holding nuclear isotopes, storing samples, maybe not the best thing to put your water in for drinking or like your, your sandwich that you're going to eat and like be done with. Um, you know, like, yeah, been using natural materials for a while. So. Cool. Well, well, guys, we're actually at the two hours. Uh, oh, cool. Groovy. Yeah, I just I was gonna say uh, thank you guys so much for coming on today, and and audience and people that listen to this in the future. That's why these guys are my study group. We can cover some crazy fucking distances between topics and subjects, and really enjoy the conversation. So um, I really appreciate you guys giving me two hours today, Leaf. I know you got a shit ton of work coming up in the future, uh, so go get him, Tiger, and appreciate that you, you give give us this time today and. Uh, Craig, thank you again for all the work you've been helping me with with uh, Ecosphere Sciences. And Ken, as always, much appreciated for the hard work you put in behind the scenes and making this all happen. So thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you. 
You bet. And Take guys, care, don't forget that uh, these guys also had some podcasts. So you want to get, you know, head over. That's the Spotify one and uh, Apple Podcasts as well. So they're on most yep. of the, the podcast I'll, software. Applied Mycology, if you just search it on any kind of aggregator, it should show up. Uh, Leaf and I put that out in 2020. Uh, kind of was it 2020 or 2021? We, we worked on it at the end of 2020. Yeah. In 2021, we released it. Um, it's 10 episodes, um, and kind of instead of doing the unrelenting, endless march, we really found a number of people that, um, that we knew because it was focused for like one topic that are in the mycological community. We have a couple of things recorded, we might release a second season, but you know, kind of like. You know, it's kind of like the like the 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 kind of cult following, like you know, get a follow up, like maybe five well, years. Maybe later. we can know. get you guys on here doing it, you know, and we'll form mm-hmm. the cult over here, and uh, I'll do the back <laughs> end, you know. Hey, you know. Anyway, guys, we're gonna end the show there. Uh, we'll have these guys back on definitely. Uh, hopefully, you know, latent study group will keep going, and maybe they'll just come study over here for a while. <laughs> you right. never know. You right. never Thanks. know. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah.